Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 428 for December 16th, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show. You send in your questions, you send in your cool stuff found, you send in your tips. We try to answer your questions, we share everything we know, and together we all learn a little something new. Here on a Sunday morning in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And also here, I believe on a Sunday morning, in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And also in Durham, New Hampshire, snowy Durham, New Hampshire, is Pilot Pete. Thanks for having me, guys. In the morning to you gentlemen. It's great to... uh, Great to have everybody here. And uh, and I'll say uh, good morning to our chat room, too, at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Everybody that uh, is joining us here this morning, we're having, a, we're having a good time. We started a little late with some technical issues on my end here, but uh, some terminal foo with the SQLite command fixed my Yojimbo database, and we are off and running. So... Uh, you know, John, we did our Cool Stuff Found show, obviously, last week, and uh, things were a little nuts, um, as as listeners might remember, with my uh, my getting home and, and the, the heat, and which is patched up. It's actually still not totally repaired, but but it's totally patched up, and, and we have heat. Um, but, uh, but things were a little scattered, and, and of course, we had more Cool Stuff Found than we ever uh, could have gotten through. So I, I, I think today we'd like to start, John, right, by... by Finishing up not all of the the leftovers from last week, but some of them shouldn't have been leftovers because they were just so good. So, uh, so we'll start with a couple of cool cool stuff found things, and we'll go from there. But first, I want to talk about our first sponsor. Mix things up a little bit, John. And our first sponsor is uh, Gazelle. So those of you that have been listening to Mac Geekab for a while, you know about Gazelle. I um, I've used them myself. What Gazelle does is they make it really easy to turn your old gadgets into cash. Uh, recently, I just sent in a uh, two, actually two old iPhones, a 3G and a 3GS. And, I, you know, I think I got about, uh, I don't know, like a hundred bucks total for them. It wasn't it wasn't a bad deal, it, you know, and it's uh, it was really easy. And uh, I I went online and I told them what I had. And they said, we'll give you this much for that one and this much for this one. And I said, all right, I'll take it. And like two days later, a box arrived. And, you know, something in the box, John, was cool. Um, You know how normally there's like styrofoam peanuts or whatever. I mean, you got to be able to put these things in a box and and ship them securely back because they don't want them damaged when, you know, when you get there. And um, instead of having packing uh, peanuts or, or the, you know, the, the air bags, like, like Amazon uses or whatever this, they have this thing where it's, um, a piece of plastic taped or, or sealed to a piece of cardboard and you slide the phone in under the plastic and the plat it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tight. And so the plastic just keeps the phone against the cardboard oh. and you need no other packing because the cardboard kind of is, is fixed in the box and you just slide it, you know, it's almost like a little sleeve. Oh, very cool. Yeah. It's total. I mean, it's got to save them a, a fortune in, in packing material, but it's also obviously time. lighter and time. And, and yeah. it was really easy. And I was able to fit both of the phones in no problem. 
and uh, sent it back. And then, you know, they confirmed, obviously the, the stuff I put in the box was what I said. I put in the box and, uh, and then they PayPal'd me the money. So that, and that's how gazelle works. It's really, really easy. But don't so, you get more money if you do Amazon? If you're willing to take it as an Amazon gift card, yeah, yeah they'll give you an extra 5%. That's cool. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so check it out. You know, I know we're, we're heading into, or we're, we're not heading in. We are, we <laughs> are swing. in the thick of holiday season here. Right. So if you've got, um, if, if you've got, or have gotten, or wind up getting a, you know, a new eye device or whatever for your, uh, for, for, as a holiday gift for you or somebody in your family, and you've got your old one, your old iPhone or whatever, your old iPod touch, and you want to turn it into cash fast, Gazelle is there for you. Check them out. Gazelle.com. Is good because we all buy stuff. You know, we're crazy with how fast we buy new things. So you've been cool. talking to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking to mine. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good though. It's good because we can turn this stuff into cash and get a little something back. That's good. Huh. I'll have to try that someday instead of using things for ten years. I know. See, there yeah, there might actually be a, a method to the madness here, John. Maybe I should get an iPhone five and retire the four. It might be time. I love the five. I do too. It is a nice phone. It really is. Yep. I've been very, well, when I it. saw it, it was a, yeah, it was a recent get together in Manhattan with a bunch of people and it was a Mike Rose actually had it. And you know, the, my first reaction when he handed it to me, I'm like, it's a plastic demo. That's yeah. too light. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it felt, it, it, it almost made me, it almost felt cheap. Yeah. 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 Right. Or, or a lot of things get, to me, you get the perception perception that it's cheap if it doesn't have some heft to it some yeah. mass well, i watched i watched my daughter's iphone 5 fall onto uh two <gasps> two steps down on cement bleachers at the hockey game this morning and Ow. no worse for where couldn't yeah. even tell it happened i can't tell you how many times i've dropped mine it drives me nuts but yeah it, i've been really, up to half a dozen times now and and there's nothing you know you haven't had it that long oh i know it's it's been horrible this is I, i've never dropped the phone so much in my life and it's it's been fabulous knock wood it's uh doing okay but cool. yeah it felt my first impression of it when i picked it up it felt like it was a gutless store demo right like there were no guts in it it was so light right but uh the screen's beautiful ah i'll stop talking. all right let's get to the show brad had a tip go brad hey john and dave brad over in west michigan wanted to pass along this tip that i found today when i was doing a little searching I have a ton of PDF files, ebooks, and whatnot that um, I wanted to compress and try to gain back some of that hard drive space. And uh, but I wanted to keep it in PDF form. I didn't want to zip, you know, zip them or RAR them. So I came across this software called PDF Compress, which looks like it does exactly what you know I wanted. But after looking at it for a bit. I stumbled across something else in the Mac. I think it was in the uh, Mac support forums, actually. And it uses Quartz filters to compress PDF documents. It's actually quite cool. I've attached the link to the guy's website where you can download his set of Quartz filters. It's in a zip file. Here's what you got to do. You got to unzip them. And I think there's probably eight or ten of them and <clears throat> excuse me you're going to have to copy them into the filters folder which is under the libraries folder and in my case it only worked if I put them under the libraries folder in the root of my drive um, I tried doing it for under my user account for some reason just wouldn't work anyways 
<clears throat> so after you get that done, you copy them over into a filters folder. I didn't have a filters folder, so I had to create it just as an FYI. Go ahead and open a PDF document in preview and click on file and then export and name your PDF what you want it to be, uh, where you want to save it. And then you'll see quartz filter. Click on that. And now you will see, should see, a bunch of all a bunch of options for what quality and how much compression you want to apply to the PDF document. It goes all the way from 75 DPI all the way up to 600 DPI with low quality and average quality <clears throat> for all of them. I was able to save a ton of room by going through some of my larger PDF documents and uh, applying this filter. Um, and for most of, in fact, for basically all of the text PDF documents, I couldn't tell the difference, um, if at all, you know, barely if at all. Uh, for some of my PDFs that are a little bit more photo rich, um, I could tell some degradation in color and whatnot. Um, I guess it just depends on what you're, you know, what you're willing to what you're willing to lose to save space, what you're willing to use in quality, lose in quality to save space. But anyways, that's just a little tip I wanted to pass along. It really has helped me out a ton. I thought maybe it could help somebody else out there, especially with our expensive SSDs that we don't want to fill up. Take it easy, guys. Thanks a lot for your show. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, you know, Apple has a built-in, uh, I think they call it reduced file size filter in, in, in that same spot, right? You'd find it when you export and you go to the quartz filters, but it's terrible because it, it reduces you down to, I think like, uh, I, I don't know. It, 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 the maximum size of the images that it'll put in there is so small that the quality is just junk. And, and so things you can make your own quartz filters, which is obviously what uh, this guy that Brad found did, uh, but he published him for us, so we don't have to go and make our own. Uh, so it, this is a great thing to have. I'd, until I'd gotten Brad's email uh, or, or uh, audio tip, I had always created my own. And it's a big, you know, laborious process. And I wasn't smart enough to save mine, uh, of course. But uh, but now I don't have to worry about it because this guy's made him and published him. So it's great. Do you ever do even any? more fun? Yeah, yes. Go. Yeah. Well, I want to, uh, yeah, so make a few points here. So one's going to be a follow up on this. And then one is a cool stuff found because it okay. involves quartz. Good. So one, I actually took, you know, I tried this. So I found the same thing that you did. If you go into preview uh, and you export, you're going to get uh, two menus. One is the format of the export. And most of those things, there are things that, uh, that make sense. Although there is one that showed up that I had never heard of it. Um, where is it here? Yeah, so they have PDF is the format, and you should probably stick with that. There's JPEG, JPEG 2000, PNG, TIFF, and Open EXR. I had never heard of that before, huh. but Preview can export to that. So if you ever need Open EXR, Preview will handle that. But then Quartz Filter, I did this, Dave. So I actually took the uh, agenda that you prepped. Uh, and this is actually another cool thing that uh, if, if you want to know who made a PDF file, uh, Mac OS will tell you. If you highlight the file and you get info, Dave, you'll see in more info. And so it says a few things here. It says title. It says the author, which is you. Yep. Uh, version. Uh, I guess the version of the PDF, the resolution. Content creator. Yo, Jimbo. 
and encoding software, Mac OS 10, 10.8.2 quartz PDF context. But I tried that reduce file size with the show notes that you or the agenda you gave me, Dave. And you know what happened? Nothing. It got bigger. Yeah, because really all all that reduce file size is doing is change. And this is why Brad didn't see uh, any difference in his text documents. It's not right. changing it's not doing anything to the text. All it's doing is it, all of these things it, are, are focusing on the size of the images that are embedded in the PDF. That's it. Right. Yeah, right. That's right. So if I had something with lots of images, so that's item number one, just a, a few cool, good, cool options. And then item number two is that, uh, so I was searching my machine. I'm like, Oh, quartz. Let me see if there's any quartz utilities on my, uh, on my Mac. And you know what? There is one, Dave, there's one called X quartz. I don't know All if you've right. heard of this. No, you're probably going to use X quartz and I'm actually surprised you haven't done it. But now in mountain lion, similar to a uh, prior OS releases, they have not included some things. And what they do not include in mountain lion is X 11, right? Which is a uh, older uh, display technology that, uh, you know, is typically uh, part, part of Unix implementations. But what Apple does now is they redirect you to uh, uh, what looks to be an open source implementation called X quartz. So if you need X 11, um, the OS should be able to, it should redirect you. But if it doesn't, you go to X quartz.macosforge.org and there it is. And then you get your X 11 support. I think the only program I use that needs X 11 is uh, Wireshark, which is a very nice uh, network monitor. Uh, so, so all right. The, yeah. In there. Good stuff. All right, moving on to Connor with a, a quick cool stuff found. He said, uh, "I've checked." Uh, he was we were he was it was in the context of another thing as as a lot of these things come up, and he was talking about HTML rendering and HTML editors. And he said on his iPad he likes to edit HTML with Nitro HTML, and it's free uh, and easy to use. So uh, so thanks, Connor. We'll uh, we'll definitely put that one in the show notes. That's good stuff. So. That's uh, oh yes, Nitro HTML. Uh, here's go. here's another thing that that will complement this. So from what I could tell, what this what the purpose of that is, um, is to let you test a web page on different uh, uh with different browsers, right? Uh, yeah. Edit HTML source. Visualize how the resulting HTML will be displayed in compliant web browsers. So that's the description of it. There is another way whoa, to kind of. It's an editor. Nitro HTML is a is an HTML editor that also lets you see it, but you can edit from it, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it does two things. So it lets you edit, but it also lets you see how it's going to look in um, right. different browsers. That's right. That's right. Uh, another way, a uh, tricky way to do that is in Safari. And, and I actually did this with, with uh, someone the other day. Uh, I was kind of surprised what it did. So if you go to preferences in Safari, you're going to see, uh, let's see, uh, in advanced show develop menu and menu bar. And what you're going to get in that menu, one of the menus is user agent. And what is that? You may ask, and I'm going to tell you. So any browser, when it connects to a web server, it identifies itself and it says, yep, hi, I'm Safari, whatever, or Internet Explorer or Chrome. This will let you change that. So you appear to be using a different browser. Yeah, but but. It will change things if if a site it's not going to rent. It's 
everything is rendered in WebKit. So you will not see how things render in Firefox or how things render in IE. All you're doing is telling the server this is what you're using. And if the server sends you something different because you're using a different browser, that's fine. And you'll get that. But you will it'll all still be rendering within WebKit. So if you want to see Firefox, setting your user agent to Firefox is not the way to do that. You've got to run it in Firefox. Otherwise, you you won't get Firefox's renderer. You will get WebKit's renderer. Yeah, but it's an interesting where I found it most interesting is if you can tell it that you're running Safari on an iDevice. Yes. And if you do that, then typically what's going to happen is even though you're on a desktop version of Safari, it will show you the mobile version of the site if someone has coded it as such, which they usually do. A lot of times you'll see an M before. If they've coded it and they're using the user agent as the method by which they are going to send you a different version. If they're using responsive design, then all you need to do is take your Safari window and shrink it width wise down Mm -hmm. to what iOS would be. and, And it will change as you do that. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a neat little trick. Or if for some reason, the website is is a uh, hostile to certain browsers and, or and platforms. I've, yeah, I've seen that too. Or you know, there's some ad servers we need to log into for work at Backbeat, and you know, they see they sent Safari, and they're like, "No, that doesn't work." And so we go into the develop menu and and change the user agent to IE, and then it works totally fine. You know, mm-hmm. it's like they just haven't certified it for anything but IE, so they say, "Well, we'll just limit it, and that way we don't have to deal with support requests." So, you know, but but it totally works. Uh, Kirshen in the chat room gave us a link to browserling.com, which is uh, looks to be a cross browser testing service for Web pages where you can see it happening inside your browser. But it's rendering with the engines from all of these other browsers, i.e. Chrome, Firefox, Safari and Opera. Yet another cool stuff found thing. We're going to keep, uh, we, sh- we should keep the pace moving here because uh, we'll be stuck yep. in cool stuff found land for two straight shows. If we yeah. don't, uh, if we don't move on, well, I uh, do have that one. Did you want me to cover that? Yeah, you might as well. Yeah, you, yeah, you, okay. If you're going to butt in, go yeah, ahead. That's my job. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this is not, uh, this is geeky and techie, but it has nothing to do with computers or iOS or tablets or anything, but uh, it, it will help save you lots of money. It certainly did me last year. Uh, this thing is called Lightkeeper Pro at lightkeeperpro.com, actually. Um, it's, I think it's about 1995, maybe even less than that. If you've got a string of Christmas lights, and, you know, the lights all today, you know, a light burns out, they keep working. Well, not always true. Not, not if a lot of them burn out. Yeah, well, even if one burns out sometimes, it's bad. Because the way the bulb is built, it's got the filament, and below the filament, there's a shunt that's supposed to allow the electricity to keep going when the light bulb burns out. Right. So what you do is you go into the uh, string that is not working, and you don't have, since it's not working, you don't wish, know which bulb isn't working, pull any bulb, plug in this Light Keeper Pro. It's about the size of a small pistol. Pull the trigger on it a couple times, and this will force electricity across the shunt and relight the entire string. And, and you, you take the, the and you can bulbs. see the bad bulbs and replace them, so you don't have to replace the whole string. And then you take the bulb and put it back in, and you're good to go. It has other features too, it voltage detectors and uh, oh. all that. And if you it, on their website, there's a link for more videos. They've got great videos on how to use each feature of this thing. It's voltage detectors, light bulb testers, light bulb puller, yada yada yada. All those things. But this thing, see, I have a pre-wired um, fake Christmas tree. I know, I know. Don't, uh, it's fine. But, we have, you know, we have but, a fake Christmas yeah, tree, too. But, you know, when you 
when it's pre-wired, you know those things are on there. And and if you've got a bad string, it either A, looks like crap and has to be replaced, and that takes hours on yep. the pre, pre-wired trees, or you use one of these Lightkeeper Pros, smack the uh, thing a couple times, and with the, with the Lightkeeper Pro plugged in, the lights light back up, find the bad bulbs, and replace them. It is fabulous. It saved its value in uh, twice over, at least, uh, in the first day I used it. Yeah. And the downside is it does not work with the LED lights. But right. with the regular, uh, you know, two and a half watt lights or five watt lights, whatever they are, um, it it's a cool, cool stuff found. And it saved me lots of headache and aggravation and time and money. And in this holiday season, get your holiday lights working with that thing. You will love it. And you'll thank me. Send checks made, made <laughs> out to. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right. I got one more. Uh and this actually comes by way of, of my son, uh, Lucas, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about his iPod Touch. He was in the store the other day and he found this thing called the App Gear Elite Commander. And it's Command AR. And really what it is, it's it's good to go to the site and, and check it out. Really what it is, is it's a uh, a um, it's a gun that you hold in your hand, but it's got a clip for your iPhone or iPod Touch to fit into the top of it. And, uh, and then it has an audio uh, cable or a mini eighth cable that plugs into your headphone jack and you download an app and it essentially makes this thing a first person shooter device. And you, there are buttons on the gun and because the audio thing is plugged in, it reads that. And so it reads your trigger pulls. You can change, uh, you know, weapons and, and reload and all that with different buttons on the on the gun. But what the cool part is, is it uses the uh, gyroscope and all of that inside the eye device. As you're moving it around, you're totally moving around in this world and you see it on your on your screen. It's twenty five bucks on the website. I found it on. Um, I think he found it in the store for about twelve. So, uh, so, which is why he bought it. He was like, Oh, this looks awesome. And it totally is awesome. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a cool, a kind of a cool enhancement to the first person shooter. And I think the app was free. So for 12 bucks, you've got this kind of cool, uh, you know, this cool thing, if you can, uh, if you can find it. So, so it's again, a timely gift, especially if you're, if you're looking for a last minute little thing to throw, uh, under the tree or wherever else it is, you may choose to put presents this time of year. That's, um, that's, that's the. That's my, that's my suggestion. Yeah. Good. Anything else on cool stuff found from you, John, before we, before we move on to our, uh, our previously scheduled show? Um, well, I think I got one item here. I Uh, I was going to mention in the last show, but I didn't, this is yet another. So similar to a hardware growler, which is the one I saw before. And they came out with a new version. Number two, another program did this, Dave NetSpot. All right. Now, you may remember NetSpot, or if you don't remember NetSpot, well, NetSpot used to be, so the first version was a freebie, and it would let you uh, do uh, what's known as a site survey. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So basically what you do is you draw a map of wherever you are, and then you start this up and you walk around, and it'll measure the signal strength. Yeah, you did did an article. uh, We've talked about this a couple of times. So they've updated it or something? Well, now they Uh have, and this was the plan, I think. So now they have NetSpot 2. Okay. And the plan was that this was, you know, a teaser and they would come out with a commercial version, but they upgraded NetSpot 2 and it's still free. But then they have a professional version that has additional um, features. But the cool thing now is that the newer one, so whereas the other one was basically just a site survey tool, 
the new one now is actually uh, it includes a Wi-Fi scanner, similar to things like iStumbler and, and some other programs. So that's kind of neat. You get two things, two programs in one. You can see what's going on around you. That's cool. And you can also map your location because a lot of times, you know, you can't obviously you can't see RF and sometimes I can. Uh, it, 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 yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> but uh, but it lets you look at uh, But But really what it does is it helps you determine the best placement for your base station. Right. And, uh, you put it somewhere, you walk around, you see the signal strength and then you move it somewhere else because there are certain things, either metal or liquids or, or whatever that can uh, interfere or block uh, your, your signal. So uh, this is a nice tool to help visualize that and make sure you get the best placement possible. Cool. Awesome. I, I did have two things I, and I queued these up for the last show uh, and totally spaced on them, but I, but I did want to uh, mention something, you know, I was on that cruise, uh, whatever it was uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, um, and I was off the grid, but I was not, I was not alone, John. Uh, there were at least two, Mac Geekab listeners on the ship with me. One that I found <laughs> totally by happenstance in the hot tub. Uh, I was actually, yeah. Okay. All, hey, hey, hey. Uh, no, no, no. We were, um, I was actually chatting with somebody else and you know, it, I don't know how we got, we were talking about freedom of schedule and that sort of thing. And I mentioned, well, yeah, I can sort of live wherever I want because of what I do. And I mentioned, you know, told them what I did and, um, you know, in a very general sense. And the, another guy in the hot tub, you know, that had sort of been part of the conversation chimed in and said, Oh, wait a minute. What websites do you run? And I told him, he's like, Oh, you're the guy from the podcast. I'm like, I am. Yeah. So, yeah, we chit chat a little bit, but, um, but that was, that was Ray in, in the hot tub. And then I was in the theater another night waiting for whatever show we were watching to start. And these two guys in front of me were talking about apps. One guy was like the expert, and and he had his iPhone out and this other guy was like the, the eager student. And um, and they were both just, you know, he was the, the, the expert was telling this other guy all about the apps. And the other guy was actually he pulled out a notepad and he's like writing down everything. And and they were making plans to get together at breakfast to talk about their favorite apps. And I so I was just kind of idly watching this transpire in front of me. And as the guy was scrolling through uh, screens on his iPhone, I saw the Mac Geek app logo on the screen. So I didn't say anything. I just figured, I'll, you know, I'll let these guys do their thing and I'll, I'll do my thing. But uh, but whoever and, and we ran into each other in, in the hallway about uh, three or four days later on the ship. And uh, and there was some recognition from you. So maybe maybe you thought, you know, maybe you'd seen my picture or something, but couldn't place it. But uh, but anyway, I, I, I didn't say hi. I figured I'd let you enjoy your vacation. But uh but uh, hello now, I will say so. Um, the other thing, John, that uh, that I wanted to mention is, you know, I used that iPad mini while I was away and now I have shipped it back to Apple because they wanted it back. Um, but now I'm back to the big iPad. And while I was very happy to come back to the retina screen, um, I got to the point using the iPad mini where I completely I noticed it if I thought about it, of course, but I didn't care about it is yeah. is really what it came down to and uh and even now that i'm back with this again it's nice but i still prefer reading on the ipad mini to this because the ipad mini is so much lighter and easier to manage and and all of that so uh i definitely see an ipad mini in my in my future i don't think i'll sell you know i was thinking about like gazelling off my my ipad 3 and getting a mini instead it would it would i'd wind up losing some money in that in that deal um but uh, 
So I, I think I may try to hold out until they do maybe come out with the next gen of, of the iPad mini, but, but it is definitely the right size for me. I never once felt like it was too small. Oh, that was what I was going to ask you. Did you ever feel like you were looking at your data through a straw? I mean, no. well, you're doing the show here on this one. Could yeah. you do the show on the mini? I did do the show oh, on the, oh, on the mini. Okay. And, and I was worried about that. Yeah. Wondering if it's just going to be too tiny. Cause I, you know, I use note taker HD to, to scratch off the stuff on the sure. agenda. Right. And uh, no, it, it was, it, I, I fully expected that to be the yeah. bottleneck for me. Yeah. And it totally wasn't. In fact, yeah. we even watched movies. <laughs> you'll love this yeah. on the, John, you're going to, you're going to love this. So on the airplane ride out, as it often is, we, um, I, we sit, we, we get four seats obviously, cause there's four of us and Lisa takes one of the aisles. And so we get, you know, three on one side and an aisle on the other. And I always put Lisa in the aisle. And this started years ago when, when the kids were much younger and she was home with the kids all the time. And, and I figured, well, on the airplane, I'll give her a break. I'll sit in the middle seat between the two kids. We put my daughter in the aisle. We put uh, my son in the window and then Lisa can have the other aisle and she can just chill. And so that habit has continued now that the kids are, you know, basically self-sufficient and, and all of that. Uh, but it's my favorite middle seat. Cause I get to hang out with the kids. Well, we, we both, well, all three of us wanted to watch the same movie. Catch me if you can. And uh, which is a great movie. And, uh, and so we had it, I, I had it on two iPads. I had it on my daughter's iPad and on my iPad mini. And so I set them up so that, uh, um, the iPad mini was, I think in front of, um, my son and, and my daughter's iPad was sort of, you know, between the two of us and I hit play at exactly the same time. So I could watch either screen and the sound was in sync and it was, it was fantastic is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but watching, you know, I watched watching the movie on the iPad mini was totally fine on the airplane. And, uh, and it was great when like we had food to eat or whatever, it didn't take up very much space on the tray table. So awesome. anyway, so that's my thoughts about the iPad mini. Go get one. If you're, if you're thinking about an iPad, go play with one of those. You're, if you haven't played with it yet, your opinion may well change. That's good to send me one for Christmas. If anyone wants, that's right. Pete. <laughs> yeah. Just send it care of me. I'll make, I'll make certain it gets to Pete. That's Thanks right. Steve. You're a pal. You bet. You bet. All right. What do we got, John? Are you still, uh, did I lose you? Okay. Right. No, no, I'm here. Okay. No, good. I just see there, there are some other items. You kind of jumped ahead here. I'm yeah. Like, I, well, like I said, we had to get out of, ahead. we had to get out of cool stuff found because uh, otherwise we'd spend the whole show there. I, so I do want to talk about our, we'll get to, we'll get to the tips and questions here. Uh, right after I talk about our second and our new, uh, our newest sponsor, which is crash plan. And I'm so happy to have CrashPlan on board because uh, I believe we all use CrashPlan here. Uh, I think you, I certainly use it um, mm -hmm. and have for years. John, you use it and Pete, you use it too. So CrashPlan is, uh, of course, at CrashPlan.com. It's an online backup service is, is the, the sort of the, 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 the way to talk about that. But they, they're, they're cross-platform. Okay. Which is very, very cool. So you can uh, back up stuff from... Uh, you know, from, from all of your machines to your same account. Um, it obviously is offsite backup because that's how, um, that's how online backup services work. Their iOS apps are fantastic and their web app is fantastic. You can get at your data from anywhere and you can choose to use your own custom uh, encryption key, or you can, you know, use theirs that's secured with your password. But uh Either way, you can access your data no matter where you are. And 
you can restore from wherever you are. It's actually pretty cool if you if you have if you like say you have to wipe your hard drive or whatever and come back. You can actually have your machine adopt an old backup um, where it you know you don't have to resend everything up to the cloud again. And and CrashPlan runs all the time in the background. You can actually set it to use different amounts of bandwidth depending on whether you're using your computer or not, or time frames and all of this stuff. So it can, it can really kind of be a, 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 a happy little uh, setup that goes as fast as it possibly can when you don't need your bandwidth. And then obviously slows down when you do it. Uh, it, it um, obviously runs in the background. You can configure it. But one of the cool things about crash plan is once you've got it set up, you can actually back up, to your other computers or to your friends, other computers. And John and I have even uh, messed with this a little bit. And I think Pete and I are going to mess with it too. having, uh, you know, John having, he can back up some stuff to me. I can back up some stuff to him. It gives us this offsite thing, but we control where the, where the data is and it all happens through crash plan. So uh, you got to check this out. It's uh it's a really, really cool service. Uh, it's definitely become my favorite of the online backup services. In fact, I even have crash plan running. I believe it's unsupported, but I have it running on my, on my disk station too. And it just works. Uh, and it's all connected to my, my same family account. So it's, uh, it's good stuff. You can check it all out at, uh, at crashplan.com. They do offer a 30 day free trial, of course, so you just go and you download the software and right inside the software, you create your account and uh, and then off you go. And and depending on how you want to do things, you can get it as low as about a buck and a half a month. Um, you, it depends on how much data you want to back up. If you want to back up unlimited data, that's about three bucks a month. If you want to back up uh, all of your and that's for one computer. If you want to back up all of your computers in the house, so they've got a maximum of 10, but uh, I think most of us don't have 10 computers in our house. It's six bucks a month. So really that for the price of two computers unlimited, you've got as many computers as you want. You can just back them all up uh, to your same account and just keep it on, keep it cooking. And they even, of course, offer gift subscriptions. So check it all out. Crashplan.com. We're really happy to have them on board. It's uh, it's one of those, one of those easy sponsorships because it's a perfect fit. It's uh, it's relevant to what you folks are doing and it's stuff that we use. So it's his one a feature. Thing. I became a one feature. I became aware of Dave during the uh, uh, power outage. Yeah. Um, and this is a nice uh, icing on cake here. It actually sent me an email saying, Hey, you know what? By the way, I haven't seen you for a while. Is it, is, is everything okay? Because I didn't have power or internet. Oh, right. <laughs> so to actually give you a notification, the other thing I like, uh, which I've learned to do for the podcast here, is that you can temporarily suspend it so it's not using whatever bandwidth you decide. Which um, And you don't have to remember it. to turn it back on, right? You can say suspend for four hours and then, yeah. and, right? And so then I that's say, it. So I say suspend Smart. for two hours and, and hopefully we can, we usually finish the show within two hours. Sure. And then it'll just uh, re-engage. So uh, yeah, and along with the bandwidth, uh, selection. It's a, uh, you know, it's very, very nice. It can, uh, it gets along well with, uh, other things on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. All right. It's time to do some tips and some questions and who knows where else we'll go. We'll start with Joe. Joe says you guys may have mentioned this as a tip before, but I just realized it and started using it. You can hold down the option key when closing an app and you get the close and quit command in the, uh, app menu. Uh, 
it doesn't save the current document to automatically open the next time you start the app when you do this. However, you can make it even easier by simply holding down command or Apple for you, John, as Joe points out, option and Q. So command option Q and it does it for you, which makes sense because that now the you're doing command Q with the quit and with the option key down, you're skipping and and sort of wiping out that cache of what documents the application is going to open the next time. Great as a troubleshooting step. Um, but also if you just, you know, you know that you want, don't want any of this stuff. If you have 16 documents open and something, you know, you don't want them all open again. You do it that way and it closes it, you know, kind of clears out that, that reopen stuff. So is a good tip. I like it. You know, there's another one along with that. Yeah, I think. Okay. Um, also when launching many apps, if they do have this feature, also launching many apps, I believe it's shift when you launch the app will also not uh, open what was previously there. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Pretty sure it's shift. Double check that. But yeah, so there's, there's a number of ways to, uh, to not uh, see what was there the last time before you quit. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Uh, let's go to, let's go to our first question for the show. Hi, John and Dave. This is Everett calling from California. I uh, just had a question about how you guys handle your printing solutions. I have a few siblings and parents who would like to print to my printer, um, you know, semi-regularly. And I was wondering how you guys have it handled. Um, one thing that I have thought about doing is figuring out some way to where when it when they email me something to print, I can just put it into, you know, have some rules or something that will sort the email out and print, put it into a folder that which automator can pick up and then print. All right. Thanks. And yeah, have a good day. And this is where you're off. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, I, my guess is we probably all have different ways of doing this and pr- we might even have multiple ways in our own homes. So, uh, so I'll start. I, I, these days, uh, I'm actually using the, uh, the X print server from Lantronics because, uh, because it means I don't need to leave a computer on and it'll allow me to print, not just from my other Macs in the house, but also from my iOS devices. So I've got this thing. The first one only would share network printers to your iOS devices. Now I've got their new, I think both the home and office edition will do this now, but uh, I've got the office edition running and I've got it USB. It plugs into the network and then my printer plugs into it via USB and it shares it on the network for all of the computers uh, and also for all of my iOS devices. So I can print to that, that printer, no problem from everything. And I don't need to have a computer on to do it. Uh, so that that's how that's how I'm doing. That's how I'm doing my printer sharing. And I, that way I don't need to worry about Dropbox or email filters or anything like that, which can get very, very convoluted and obviously is, you know, open to problems and that sort of thing, uh, or at least inconsistencies. So how, what do you do, John? I I'm I have a pretty simple setup. So I have two main printers here. Yep. So my primary one, uh, which is uh, as old as the hills, you know me, right? Is my GCC Elite 12, 1212, I think it is, 1200 DPI laser printer. It's probably like over 10 years old. Uh, but when I got it at the time, I mean, this thing had every bell and whistle. You know, right. when I get something, I want it to last. And so 
basically what I did with that is a, I map it as a, uh, and this is, this is common, though some people may not know about this, but there is a protocol over TCP IP. I think it's either LPR or LPD. And it basically uh, lets you specify a printer by IP address. Uh, you know, there are other ways to uh, search for a printer, of course, but this is the one that I've used. I mean, normally when you, you know, click on the plus in the print dialog, it'll say default, fax, IP, Windows, things like that. But so it's, a, case, it's, a, go to, it's a network printer. Correct. Yeah. So right. it has an Ethernet port. And, um, you know, so I'll print to that mainly from the uh, mainly from the computers, uh, not really from the iDevice. Um, the other thing is that so I also have an inkjet, which is a USB printer, and that's a, a HP B8550. And I've oscillated between different solutions for that. I've I've tried the um, and I do have like you, the, uh, you know, thanks to our buddies, uh, you know, at X uh, or Lantronics, the uh, X print server. Yep. I find it does some funny things, and, and they told me that it was d- due to the, uh, to really to the OS, and it wasn't okay. anything. That, and then if I tried to print to the inkjet, what would happen? Uh, so the iDevice sees it, uh, or the, the iPhone sees it, but when I tried to print, and this just kind of drove me nuts, depending on where I was trying to print from, I think if I was trying to print an image, it would always go to this particular printer and try to pull in a piece of paper from the photo paper tray. And it's like, no, don't do that, please. There, there's, there's eight and a half by 11 in the other tray. And, and it, but it, it I mentioned this to him and they said it was a fault with, uh, with iOS and there was really nothing they could do about it. So that kind of, huh. that kind of bugged me and that it, uh, it wouldn't I work that way, but the, I haven't run into that. I mean, obviously you and I have different printers and that's, you know, that's why that's not happening on this end, but yeah, that's interesting. That's good to know. And I think what I'm going to do is move back to, so, you know, I was doing this experiment with the uh, Monoprice uh, base station and, uh, and mentioned this in the pre-show, mentioned it again, it's kind of a piece of junk, but then it's 20 bucks. I mean, it, it loses, uh, it, DHCP gets co- confused and sometimes just the connection is dead and I got to cycle power on it. So oh, I think I'm going to move back to the time capsule because of course that has a USB port, which lets you share a uh, USB uh, inkjet printer to other, to other computers. But not Correct. to iPhones, right? Um, no. Sometimes. No. Yes, in that I've had some apps. So normally you want AirPrint, right? I, I have had right. some apps see the printer when it was connected that way. I think they're doing something. Uh, they're doing something they're not supposed to. But I, I have had apps see the inkjet printer shared with the time capsule. Though normally you can't do that, and that's why you want to have something like the uh, the XPrint server, right? Right. Um. Or the other thing I experimented with, but I typically don't do is, of course, you can plug it into your computer and share it from there and say, share the printer on the network. That, that's true, um, Everett. Yeah, you, you can you can just plug in and go into uh, uh, system preferences, printers. I bel- well, actually, you got to go into system preferences and then sharing first and enable printer sharing. And then you can go into uh, system preferences, print and scan and select a printer and choose to share it on the, on the network for other Macs. And that works great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, somebody in the chat room and I, I will get your name here because it's good stuff. Uh, John, John Linthicum in the chat room suggests a, a thing from Eurosmarts.com called we print for Mac. And uh, of course we will put that link in the show notes. But it says that WePrint enables printing to shared printers for iOS and Android devices from uh, all of their uh, for uh, so for all of your printers. So uh, 
I guess you, I guess you, I'm, I'm looking at this now on the fly, obviously, but it uh, looks like you run it on your Mac and it does whatever it needs to do to enable air print support. And, and your Mac is doing the, the legwork on that. So. And actually another nice aspect of that, Dave, is that you can, I was thinking in the back of my mind, how you do this. Now I think some printers have uh, a, a method of authenticating with it before you can print to it. The other thing though, if you do the print sharing, I noticed this box. So you do the print sharing there's one list, which is, of course, the printers, but then it says users. And normally, I think it defaults to anybody can print to the printer, but I would imagine that you could set it up so it would require you to uh, submit some credentials before you can print to the printer. So if you have a printer that you don't want everybody to print to, um, wow. that's, a, that's a good way to do it. Cool. All right. Uh, let's go to Howard here, who has an interesting question with a with a little tip. Um, Howard says, I like being able to click on links with your podcast while listening in iTunes. And of course he's talking about the chapterized podcast that Michael Johnston does for us. Uh, he says, I tried to set up iTunes 11 to look like previous iTunes, but I'm not seeing the cover art on the bottom left to click on and get the, uh, to get the, the, the images and the links could you mention the solution on a future podcast? So I had not realized that this was just not there anymore. You of course can go to the chapters menu to see the chapters listed, but you don't get the, the uh, breakout box that shows you the, the links in line. And so you kind of totally miss out on all that. The way I found to do it, and maybe there's another way. Uh, and if you found it, please share. But the only way I found to do it is you start the podcast playing and then in the uh, at the top of iTunes on the left, you'll have the the shuttle controls, you know, the play and, and pause and then volume. And then in the middle, you've got uh, where it's showing you the active show that's playing and the, um, you know, where you are uh, in the in the show, the scrubber. On the very left of that is the logo for the show. If you click on that. It will expand into its own window uh, where you'd also have play controls and all of that stuff. But in the middle of that window, when there is a link that we've embedded into the show, uh, that link appears. So it's it's not as obvious as it used to be to get it up there. But once it's up there, then then you can see them. So I don't know if anybody else has found another way to do it, Howard. But uh, but that's how I found to do it. And it at least gets gets that functionality back to happening for you. So that's a good huh. thing. Look at that. that I nice. know. I, yeah. yeah, I think I've warmed up to 11 uh, after I got over the initial outrage at them, you know, shuffling everything around. Right. Um, yeah, I'm actually kind of kind of OK with it. They're, they're, they're categorizing things and I think making it uh, visually it's uh, it, it looks nicer, too. Yeah, it's a pain and in the, the neck listings. managing a, managing a large music library in it. I don't want to yeah. see all my album covers. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but that's, you know, apparently what I'm supposed to see. That's what they what they like for me to see. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Okay. Anthony has a tip for us, John. He says, I just came across something that may have been around a long time, but I just discovered it. And it's true. It has been around a while. Uh, he says, I was dealing with a folder of images and needed to add some other stuff to it. So I needed to move all the photos into a subfolder on a whim. I selected the entire contents of the folder while in that window and control clicked or right clicked. The menu showed up with the top item being new folder with selection. And in parentheses, it said 155 items. My amazement. 
How many times have I been trying to organize a folder and went through the process of manually creating a new folder upon uh, based upon what seemed like a likely descriptive criteria, then had to go and select all the stuff, sometimes by size, type alphabetically, then try to find the folder I just created and drag it in. He says it totally cuts out the middleman. It also works on the desktop for a quick cleanup when wanting to show someone a less cluttered screen. That's actually a great second tip. I like that idea. Just select all on the desktop and pop it into a folder real fast. Uh, perhaps this was introduced all the way back in OS six or eight, but some of us take longer to catch up. I had never seen this before, Anthony, but I went back as, uh, as far as snow leopard, I believe. And it was there. So, uh, so I don't, I don't know how far back it goes. You might be right. It may have been there. It may have been there pre OS 10 even, but, uh, but it's still there and it's a good tip. So we share. It's what we do. Mr. Braun, anything to add yes. to that before we move on to, uh, to Jeff here? No, not really. All right. That's good stuff. Well, Jeff has a, uh, has a question that I'm sure is going to dive us down a rat hole here, but oh, no, uh, no, it's not going to get ratty. Well, it and might I can read this. All right. Well, Jeff says, um, I remember from years ago, uh, that email is insecure and should not be used to send passwords and other sensitive information. I don't remember all the reasoning for this idea, but know that at least part of it was because email data was sent in clear text. Nowadays, SSL and webmail via HTTPS is getting to be the standard. Does this mean we're safe to use email for somewhat sensitive information? And John, this one's yours. I, I started stealing it from you, but now I'm going to throw it to you. Ow. <laughs> and my answer to this would be yes. Really? So, well, for sending it. Well, oh, uh, I'm going to add something to it, though. Here. Okay. Okay. So uh, the point that was brought up is correct, is that the original email protocols didn't uh, take security into account. Things were sent in the clear. You know, the first thing uh, I want to point out with this, Dave, so, is, and this is a, something that I don't hear a lot of people talk to when they talk about security is that it's not like anybody can just come along and start watching your internet traffic, right? Especially if you have a wired connection. Well, that's true. I mean, the assumption, uh, wireless, uh, yes, you know, wireless tends to be, uh, you know, uh, easier to monitor and, and no one knows you're doing it. But for a wired connection, I mean, you know, unless somebody comes to your house and, you know, uh, what about splices your cable, <laughs> It, there's oh, times yeah, in hotels. hotels when people can see, you can see other computers and that that's because they've set it up wrong. And then, right. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But still, if somebody is in a position, you know, whether they're near a router or near the server or whatever, um, then yeah, I would say that the initially email would not do this, but of course now uh, with the uh, advent of SSL, which is secure socket layer, and this is basically, in a nutshell, it creates a secure connection between two points. It can be used for browsers, which if you see an HTTPS connection, uh, it's implemented, but you don't have to use it for traffic on port 80, or I'm sorry, port 443 is typically where HTTPS goes. Um, you could use SSL for anything, really. And someone at some point said, hey, you know, why don't we use it for email to complement it? And there is a way to do that. But you have to make sure that you have your uh, your connection set up right. So if you're using Apple Mail, where you're going to see this is if you go into your account screen, and then you're going to see a list of accounts, and typically on the Advanced tab, you're going to see some options here. So like I'm looking at my iCloud uh, connection right now, and in the Advanced, it's saying, um, 
uh, uh, towards the bottom, it'll say, oh, what port should I use? And this will be for uh, incoming. And right now it's set for port 993. And there's a checkbox saying check. Use SSL. Of course, you could uncheck that. Then your content would not be encrypted. So that's one place to look. But there are two parts to the equation because there are two protocols that are using. One is when you're picking up your mail, and that would either be IMAP or POP. But the other is, and, and this is where, you know, I thought this was a good question to address. The other is the outgoing. And that's SMTP, but that's not in that dialogue. So what do you do? Well, it, it's kind of tricky to get there, but you can get there in Apple Mail. And I think the, the best way is that if you go to account information for any of your choices, on the bottom, you'll see outgoing mail server, SMTP. And if you click on that, then you'll see edit SMTP server list. And in that list, there's also an advanced tab. And you will see for the various servers you have selected. So like to use iCloud again as an example, I, I see smtp.me.com. And I'm set up to use default ports and use same box, use secure sockets layer. That's checked. You want to make sure that's checked for uh, any SMTP servers that you're using. And actually for mine, it's checked uh, uh, for all except one, which is one that I don't use anymore. That was my old uh, opt, opt online. Of course, I migrated over to, uh, to Gmail. Uh, but that was not checked because I guess their implementation didn't support it. So, Absolutely. so that's one aspect, Dave. So, so one aspect is if you want to protect... Uh, things in transit, then yes, I think SSL will will do nicely. But there's another. Well, let, let's talk about and, and I do want to go to this other thing because I, I think I know where mm -hmm. you're going. But it, but as far as the transit, I, I did want to point out something in app crash in the uh, because he's having some problems with the Mac Geekab app. He's called himself Mac Cra app crash. But uh, in the chat room, he pointed out that while it's encrypted between you and the mail server you're sending to or the mail server you're receiving from. There is no guarantee that it's encrypted between those servers, because if let's say you're sending me mail, right, you're going to send mail from your computer to, let's say, your optimum online mail's outgoing mail server. Right. So you're, that that's encrypted. But I'm not going to pick I'm going to pick it up from, in my case, uh, Google server because I use Google apps for domains. And my connection there is encrypted. But between Comcast uh, optimum online server and Google server. You and I have no control over whether it's encrypted there when it's being sent between those two servers. Now, it is possible for those servers to also use SSL if they're configured to do so, but they may not be configured to do so. The default is not to do that. So it's still sent in the clear out there in transit. Um, so so that you got to be careful of that. OK. All right. Uh, I can yeah. see that. But let me add to this. So, no, that's a good point and a kind of talks to the point I made before is that I don't think many people have that access. True. But if they do, then they'll see it. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's actually a very good point here. And, but for the access between you and the first mail server, SSL uh, will protect it. Right. Especially to Pete, that that will protect it to Pete's concern. If you're in a hotel or something right, like right. that, if people sniffing. So, so it is, it is good. And it probably in many cases, good enough However, and now I'm going to give you a little lead in here because I think I know where you're going to go with this. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it's still unencrypted on the mail server while it's waiting for you to come and get it. Uh, and if someone did get access to that, then that data is completely stored in the clear. It's also stored in, in the clear on your computer uh, because it's because that's how it 
it comes in. So perhaps there's a solution there, John. And there's actually a couple of solutions. So one solution, and you and I have wrestled with this, Dave, and, and I don't think the industry has ever gotten it quite right, uh, would be to use a certificate. Yeah. And we've talked about certificates before, but a certificate is a piece of data that is unique to you and also contains encryption keys that can be used uh, to protect uh, whatever. And uh, but but the I found Apple Apple Mail implementation is always kind of wonky and that it's very picky about it. And unless the certificate is formed just right, you won't see the option in mail if if. Their certificate is available and, and it has to be available for the recipient. So you need a certificate from the recipient. Then it will encrypt the content and, and make it so that only that person or, or you could target it for multiple people. Right. And whoever you have a certificate for, it will then encrypt that. And as far as I know, that would encrypt the traffic. I don't know that you can no target it for multiple what. people. I think it can only be encrypted with one certificate. Well, I guess you need multiple you just send, certificates. You send the email out multiple times is what you'd have to do. Yeah, because it's got to encrypt it and then send. So it, it, I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to send multiple copies of the email in the same bundle. I haven't tried it, honestly. Right. Yeah. So implementing certificates. And yeah, Dave, you found one one company that will offer these. And I think that's who you and I both went to when we were experimenting so with you, this. Yeah, you're talking about the chat room to people that aren't seeing the chat room. It's it's from Komodo.com. Uh, and, and the link will be yes. in the show notes, too. But uh, they have, I believe it, it will, um, I think it's instant SSL is, is where you get the certificate from, but it's, it's Komodo, C-O-M-O-D-O. But again, the link is out there. You can get a free email certificate. So what would need to happen is uh, like for you and I, John, I would need to go get a certificate and then you would need to go get a certificate. And the first message I send you with, it would not be encrypted, but it would be signed by me. Uh, And that, that, uh, provides for two things. Number one, it ensures that the email came from uh, who Komodo believes to be me uh, because it's, it's through this certificate process. But then that also gives you my public key and you can then turn around and send me an encrypted email with my public key that I'm the only one that, uh, that can decrypt unless I've shared my private key with someone and then I've screwed everything up. But uh but yeah, yeah, it works. It, I, you know, and these these certificates from Komodo, they work pretty well with mail. You go and you do the download process and uh, it automatically imports into your keychain, and and then you have to quit mail and come back in. And the option appears to uh, to either sign or or encrypt. If I have like if I had your key, I could then encrypt to you. It's pretty good stuff. Right. And in mail, what you will see um or what you may see is two icons on the, the right hand side of uh, when you craft the email and one you're going to see is a little lock. And I think that's um, that's the uh, encrypt. And then I think the other icon is for uh, signing. So you will see uh, two extra icons um, if all the certificates that are necessary are in place. Right. That's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. And then the final the the, the final uh, thing here is that well, well with certificates, I believe they are encrypted. Um, I believe they're encrypted on the disk. I have to double check that, huh? But if they're not, then you may also want to consider having some sort of secure storage because okay, well it's great that it's in transit encrypted, but what if it's on your hard drive and someone 
runs away with the machine. Well, oh no, it's it's encrypted. Yeah, it, it, it in, inside mail. Just, yeah, it stores it encrypted. You have to authenticate or enter your password or or whatever. Okay, that's to, that's what I that's what I thought. Yeah, but it still. Right, may, so that's a, one way to protect sensitive emails. Um, it still may another be insecure. Is some sort of a full disk encryption. Yeah, if you have automatic logins set, where there would be. Um, uh oh, I'm hearing a hiss here. I don't John, know you John, can you can't me. you uh, can't hear that. me. I'm going to go ahead and mute John for a second until until he comes back because he's talking over me. Um, and when we have a little bit of a an issue because he can't hear. John, are you back? Can you hear me now? No, I don't. There we go. No, can. I'm back. Can you hear yeah. me now? Are we? Yes. In, are we in sync with each other? I think so. I had another hiccup. OK, I heard a hiss, but now I can hear you again. And That's fine. Your quality is getting better. Good. So um, so what what I was going to say, I think is uh, if you have automatic login turned on then and and that automatically then unencrypts your keychain if you have these keys stored in your keychain then it's effectively unencrypted on your computer because it's going to go ahead and and decrypt this stuff um it's stored encrypted but if somebody has access to your mac then they have access to your to your data just right bear that. In and mind. I was mentioning, I don't know if it got cut out here, but full disk encryption is yet another thing you can do. Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, and that if somebody does get the, the hard drive where things are in the clear, um, unless they have the uh, full disk encryption. Yep. Tony, Tony in the chat room, uh, echoed that as well. That that's another thing. So there there's, there's not a single answer. As you can tell what we mentioned here, there are multiple layers and multiple points uh, during the emails journey. Um, I guess the final thing I would mention, though, is a lot of time. I remember this. The second final uh, from or the second final thing. I remember this from from doing some security work is that if you are going to transmit uh, uh, credentials or passwords or whatever. It's probably best to not send all of the information through a single channel. And what do I mean by that? So, for example, Dave, I want to I want to set you up uh, an account on my computer here. So. What I'm going to do, well, the, the, the bad way to do it is I'm going to send you in an email that's unsecure. I'll send you the username and the password and the address of the server, right? Right, right. Well, that's bad. What you may want to do is consider using different channels for different pieces of information. So maybe I want to call you on the phone and tell you what your password is and then email you the username. And unless somebody monitors both those channels, they will not have all the pieces that they need to put the puzzle together. I like it. Um, that's good. Yeah, no, that's smart. That that's smart thinking. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it takes a little extra work, but it, it'll help, uh, help protect you. Yeah. So cool. So good question because there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of pieces to it. I told you it was going to go down a rat hole. No, it came out of the rat hole. And what's well, wrong with rats? I like rats. <laughs> All right. So why is that a rat hole? I don't know. Cause that's, cause that's the term. That's what we use. All right. So, uh, this was an interesting one from Joe. He says, recently I brought my Mac, my iMac running OS 10.8.2 to have the hard disk replaced. Since then, I occasionally get the following message and it says you must force quit an application. Your Mac OS 10 startup disk has no more space available for application memory. And then it lists apps and you can force close one. It says, however, if I look in the finder, I see that I have over 700 gigabytes free on my startup disk. It says, what's going on here? Uh, the force quit window is very insistent. Okay, so this is this is interesting because I, I you know, I uh, 
and because I have no reason not to, I believe the screenshots you're sending me. So I believe that you're getting this. And then at the same time, you clearly have plenty of space available. And, and what this system is talking about is virtual memory, right? If you don't have enough physical memory in your Mac, uh, and even sometimes if you do, your Mac will save out uh, bits of data to the hard disk uh, for, uh, for sort of to, to keep RAM from being clogged up with stuff that's not needed at the moment. So uh, though you have nearly 800 gigs free on your hard drive, I dug a little deeper because clearly the message isn't lying, right? But it's misleading. Your Mac does truly believe that you have run out of space in some way. So, but clearly it's not because you don't have enough space on your hard drive. So maybe there's another limit being imposed, right? Obviously, if one hits the size of the available space on the hard drive, that's one limit, but you're not hitting that. So what if there's another? What if the process that manages virtual memory also has a hard limit, regardless of the available hard disk space? And it appears as though it does, and that that limit is 56 gigs. Um, So if that's the case, then... This situation is possible. It's a lot of space. 56 gigs is a huge amount of space. But if you've got an app that's run that's run amok, it's possible that you could eat up 56 gigs of virtual memory and not even notice. Um, so that's one thing. And and the way you check that, uh, if you're running iStat menus, which actually came out with a new version this week, that's actually even cooler and totally worth checking out. Um, that's one way to check your swap usage. But another is to just simply launch Activity Monitor if you can. Uh, again, it, your system may not let you launch uh, apps because it's in this state. But if you can launch Activity Monitor, go to the System Memory tab at the bottom and check the Swap Used section to see just how much swap is used. If it says that 56 gigs is used, well, then you can believe that, that you know something has run away with it. But you said you replaced your hard drive, and after replacing your hard drive, this happens. What if your Mac isn't creating any swap space because it can't? If for some reason, now the system should do this automatically, but if for some reason your Mac can't create the swap files where it thinks it, it, it should or where it's being told to, then you would also get a message like this when it says, yeah, I can't use, you know, I, I I'm running out of virtual memory because I don't have any to start with. Right. Let's perhaps that's the message. So for that, you've got to look in uh, the com.apple.dynamic underscore pager P list, which is inside system library launch demons. And in there you'll see the location of the swap file and it should just be private var VM swap file. And, uh, and perhaps that folder doesn't exist. You know, something about the change of the hard drive makes me think that, you know, maybe, if that folder doesn't exist or if it exists, but there's uh, corrupted data out there, you know, clearing out the swap files is, uh, is it, is it, is a good thing. So, um, so that, you know, that, that might be it. Onyx will clean out your, your swap files, I believe. Um, certainly Applejack will, but Applejack's not ready for mountain lion to my knowledge. So, uh, so it was a fun little tour, but, uh, we have not, I don't believe we've heard back from Joe as to what, this uh what you know which of these things is happening to him so we share with all of you to uh to help you in your troubles mm-hmm. troubleshooting adventures and i remember this uh, and actually I, I added on to this with a little additional information because i remember we solved a problem like this 
or I think I took the lead on this, solved a problem for someone else who was having the same thing happening. Okay. So one thing that's occurring to me, I wonder when the screenshot was taken, if it was taken after the error was generated or if it was taken after a reboot, uh, as far as how much free space do I have left. But on one thing drive. that happened, yeah. Dave, is I remember we had someone who was absolutely running out of uh, or taking up all the disk space with swap files. Oh, sure. And what happened is that there was one program that they were running that had what we call a memory leak, which is basically a program that never releases and keeps consuming memory. And if this happens, eventually you will run out of disk space. And as Dave said, the place to normally look, and that's what I asked the person to do at one point. I'm like, well, can you check private var VM? And there was swap files, zero, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, There were like 50 of them. Yeah. There were tons. Yeah. And, and we, and then, uh, so how do you find out which program is causing this grief? And the way you do that is you go into activity monitor. Yeah. And there will be, or they should be, if there's not, you want to look in the virtual memory column. No, actually you don't. Well, virtual in this memory- case, in this case, it did show us the problem. Everybody else had a reasonable amount of virtual memory that they, that they wanted yeah. the problem process, at least in this case, though. Yeah. I want to hear what you have to say, but yeah, okay. there was only one process where it showed tens of gigabytes of virtual memory being consumed. And that was the problem process. I, I, yeah. Okay. So it's certainly a way of doing that. But the thing is that virtual memory column and activity monitor is not indicative of the amount of actual virtual memory that that process is using. It's the amount that it has said it might want to use. And I'm again, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Uh, partially just to keep things moving, but also, frankly, I don't fully understand what that column is, but I know it's not the amount that's actually in use. The column that's that that shows you an activity monitor, the amount that's actually in use is called shared mem or uh, let's see, what do they call it in the thing? It's called real shared memory. If you go into activity monitor view columns and check real shared memory and then it shows up in the list as shared mem mem. So if you sort by that, you can see the actual amount and, and there's, there can be a market difference, which is why I bring it up. Obviously in your mm-hmm. example, it, it helped find the problem. So it's great. But on mine right now, I have the iStat local demon saying that it's taking up 917 megabytes of virtual memory, but really it's only using 212 K on the disc in shared memory. So, so the shared memory column is, is the, the trick there to seeing what's actually being written out to the disc. I don't know. I don't know what this other one is. It's common to all Unix systems. So it, it, it mm-hmm. clearly means something, but it's not exactly what we're looking for. So it's crazy right. stuff. <sighs> crazy stuff, John. I don't know. Just need uh, more memory. What's that? Need more memory. You need more memory. All right. Let's see. We've got, uh, I'm sure we're way over time here. Oh, it's not uh, that far. Let's look 10. and let's hour, see. Hour, hour, 10 minutes. Hour and 10. Yeah. So uh, let's let's do let's do Ralph and then Robin uh, and then we'll and then we'll move on with our uh, with our week here. So Ralph actually has a has a tip and with Robin, we'll have a tip for you, too. But Ralph says uh, he was having problems. He says, I have an Apple TV second generation, which connects to my iTunes library on my iMac wirelessly. A month ago, before I went on vacation, all was working fine. On return, I got the dreaded updating date and time wheel of frustration that all Apple TV owners 
don't want to see. I bypassed the screen and updated the Apple TV software to 5.1. Same message. Quick search of the web revealed that this is a common problem with few solutions. I tried unplugging the Apple TV power and HDMI cables, unplugging my airport extreme, unplugging my modem, restoring the Apple TV. Net result, same search for the date and time update on startup and a further degradation. Prior to my troubleshooting, I could see my computer and access my library. Now I cannot, and inputting previously working and valid iTunes credentials returns an error message. Where I previously had a half a brick, now I have a whole brick. Well, before we got back to him, Ralph dug in and dug in again. And finally, he says, success. Uh, before resetting the airport extreme, I used airport utility to go into network and change the router mode from off bridge mode to DHCP and net. I pressed update. I got the expected error message. I reset it back to bridge mode, which is what I use it in. Another update and presto, all is working as it should. I'm not sure of the technical explanation. I just know that it worked for me and maybe for others. And I actually got another email from Ralph that he ran into the problem again and this fixed it again. So this, I believe, is clearing out some of those very tough to clear out caches inside your airport extreme. You know, the bonjour caches and all this other stuff that it, it sort of holds dear to. It didn't even get rid of it after a reboot with power down, but but doing it this way did. So not only would this be a solution for those of you that are having this problem with Apple TV, but I think the more common issue is, you know, we. We, we all have seen from time to time, if we have multiple Macs on our network, one Mac will come up and then it'll be renamed with a one after its name or a two or a three. And sometimes you get one of those that's phantom and it's stuck out there, but there's no way to get rid of it. And even though the machine doesn't exist, it'll appear twice, even though there's only one machine. And I think this might be the answer to that. So, you know, it's uh, it's well worth filing this tip away. And and remembering it down the road. So, Ralph, thank you for uh, not only sharing that with us, but your persistence in figuring it out in uh, in my absence while while we were while I was on vacation. So it's uh, it's good stuff. Thanks, man. Anything on that, Mister Braun? I just thought that was good. When in doubt, reset. Yeah, but he. I mean, he. he you know, you would assume that pulling power from the router would would be mm -hmm. the trick, but it. It wasn't. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. good. All right. Um, Robin had a question, and it's funny. I actually used this solution uh, in pre-show while I was trying to fix the my Yojimbo problem, John. Robin says, uh, I have had a number of issues with my MacBook Pro uh, Retina and resorted to a complete reformat and install everything from scratch. So far, so good. But I've lost some of my data. Well, a better description is I have misplaced some of my data. I regularly clone my MacBook Pro. In fact, I do it once a week and I made a special clone just prior to wiping it out. So I do have everything as it was. However, the files and data I'm look currently looking for are in the user library folder on the clone drive. And for the life of me, I cannot find a way to access this. Of course, it's easy to access the current library folder, but not the one on the external drive. How do I get here? And this is interesting because uh, starting in, in Mac OS X Lion, I, I believe the users, right? The, the home library folder is non-existent, right? And mm -hmm. we do know the trick, John, that you can go to the Apple menu or hold down. Sorry. You can hold down option and go to the go menu 
and then library appears. And there's other ways of, of getting there, too. But at least there's that way. But you can't hold down option and say, I want to go to the library folder on an external drive. It only brings you to your home library folder. So how do you get there? And I scratched my head about this for a little bit and then thought, wait a minute. Why not go to the finders go menu and choose go to folder? And then you type in slash volumes slash the name of the disk slash users slash your username slash library. And sure enough, it gets you there and you have to know or be able to figure out that full path, but you can manually force it and get to that library folder that way. And it, this also works for network shares uh, in exactly the same way. So thought that was a handy yep. little tip up. No, and, uh, Kirshen, Kirshen read my mind because she brought up a, a, a follow up that I do is that once you've done that, Dave, yep. you may want to take that folder that should be in the, uh, top of your screen and you may want to drag that over to your sidebar in the favorites so you can get to it again. Yeah. Good thinking. Yep. I have that on, on my MacBook, and yeah, so I have, but I, I dragged both over. So I have both the system level library folder and, and then the uh, user library folder, both in my sidebar if, and when I want to muck about in that. Folder. Uh, smart man. I like it. Yeah. Now would that, I guess that work for a external, would that work for an external volume? Totally. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So once you found it, that'll, it'll uh, maintain it. That's uh, good stuff. I like it. I think it's time to bring our friends in, John. It's, it's yeah. almost lunchtime for me. I didn't even have second breakfast this morning. You know, we usually have second breakfast and we have, coffee. We usually have second breakfast after the, uh, after hockey games that are early. But, uh, but today we did not because I had to make it back here for all of you. Um, there was one thing though, uh, was it, uh, when I was digging into Joe's problem, did I, I may have mentioned this on a mm-hmm. previous show, but, uh, when I was digging into Joe's problem, which was the one about finding all that virtual memory stuff, I was digging deep into Unix and checking all kinds of stuff out. And I found some really cool files. Uh, this is where I found this Lord of the Rings calendar. That's actually part of FreeBSD and, and buried into OS 10, but we'll put that link in the show notes too. It's, it's actually kind of cool, but you can see it. It's on your Mac in user or usr slash share slash calendar slash calendar dot lotr and uh i wrote an article with some instructions on how to how to view it but it's it's kind of cool you get to see you know what date sauron attacked asgiliath and you know what date bilbo returned to bag end and all of that stuff so that's uh i think that's it's important right to know that that stuff's on your computer there's other there's other stuff. There's a music calendar that has like you know birthdays of of like David Bowie and Johann Sebastian Bach and and uh, all of that in one file. But this is all just part of Unix. It's co- it's cool stuff, for sure. I can't remember if I mentioned that on a previous show. <laughs> I forget. You know, there's one buried in. Um, I'll have to find it. It's another little Easter egg. But there's there's yeah. something buried in uh, Emacs. Oh, there, yeah, there's, yeah, there is. There's a game or something, right? Or is there more than? I think that, that was it. I think there's actually a, a version uh, of uh, Advent or, or, or Zork. I thought that was it. Kirshen's saying it's Eliza. Or Eliza, I'm sorry. Yeah, the uh, the uh, the first uh, computer uh, psychologist. That's yeah. right. That's artificial intelligence, right, John? Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. What do we have here? Well, if you want to contact us, there's two ways. Number one, if you're a premium subscriber, you can contact contact us at premium at macgeekab.com. Premium? 
at MacGeekGab.com. Is that what you said, Dave? It is. I said premium at MacGeekGab.com. And if you're not a premium subscriber, well, we would love for you to be. But if you're not, feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address for you. He's gone. He's so gone. I'll say feedback. At I'm MacGeekGab.com. here. <laughs> okay. Now he's back. <laughs> I was just building he, the he suspense. Was writing, he was writing to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> I was asking Eliza about this. Oh, there you go. Um, you can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is, John? 4335. You can see the show notes at MacGeekGab.com. We put links to all the stuff that we told you we would. Uh, you can Skype us to MacGeekGab. How else, John? Uh, Twitter. The Twitters. There's so many. Uh, uh, Mac App on Twitter is the podcast. Uh, Mac Observer is the publication. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. He is Pilot Pete. That's right. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, which is a great way to uh, check the schedule for the next upcoming live stream, if you're into that. I believe the next one will be on Sunday, December 23rd, which is, I believe, Festivus. Uh and I believe we're going to do that one also in the morning because of, uh, you know, scheduling gets interesting this time of year and it's better to get it done early in the day before things get nuts. So, uh, but I think that's right. But check us out on Facebook and, and you'll know for sure what the schedule is. You can also contact us right there inside the Mac Geek Gab app. So, uh, so go get that for your, your iPhone or iPod Touch. And, uh, and there you go. You can listen to the show and contact us and all of that good stuff. But I think now it is time for us to move on. We want to thank, of course, Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast because he converts this and every other show to AAC. We want to thank the folks at Cashfly for the bandwidth. We want to thank the podcast marketplace, which includes BB Edit from Barebone Software, PDF Pen for iPhone and iPad, and Mac from Smile, Gazelle.com to sell all your stuff, and of course, Crash Plan to back up all your stuff. I hope you have a fantastic week. Don't go too crazy with all the last-minute holiday shopping. But if you do, don't get caught.